Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Paul said in his works nine times he spoke about the subject of ignorance. Seven of those times he said in his epistles to the churches he was writing to, to the people he was writing to, I don't want you to be ignorant. The other couple of times he just made mention of those who were already ignorant. And then one time he said, if anybody really wants to be ignorant, then just let them be ignorant. Peter also talked about the ignorance of people who willingly refused to remember about the creation of the world. The earth was in the water and standing out of the water. And he says, of this they are willingly ignorant. And then about three verses later, and he said, but I don't want you to be ignorant. Now put together uh, what Peter said, what Paul said, and there is a strong interest from the Bible writers for people not to be ignorant. Now I say that at the risk of somebody being offended and saying, Pastor called me ignorant today. No, I didn't call you ignorant. I said, I don't want anybody to be ignorant. That's a a passion of mine as a pastor. Now, how many of you uh, have read the Bible through more than one time in your life? Uh, How many of you have read the Bible through ten times at least? Look at that. Look at that. It is wonderful. Now, uh, 20 times. (laughs) You got any hands? This is wonderful. We still got hands going up. For those of you who have read the Bible through that many times, do you still find something new when you go through it? Isn't that amazing, the depths of what God's Word has to offer? That even though those of you that are here that have read it through multiple times, you've never quit and said, well, that's all there is to know. I'm not going to read it anymore because there's always something there. Now, that, the reason I bring that up is because uh, as I share with you today how to read the Bible, it's because I want you to know that there's so much more there than you've ever gotten before. No matter how many times you've read it, no matter how familiar you you are with it, there is a possibility that you have at times read parts of the Bible wrong. People do that. And it's going to take me four Sundays to give this to you. Different parts of the Bible have to be read differently, and I'm going to be dealing with that. We'll be dealing with how do you read the Gospels? How do you read the Epistles? How do you read? And when you go to the Old Testament, you know you, you cannot use the same rules for reading Psalms that you do for reading the narratives. You cannot use the same rules for reading the narratives as you do reading the wisdom literature. There are different ways to read those so that you understand what it's saying. And this is, going, this is difficult. This is daunting. This is one of the most difficult things I've ever done in ministry is this series of four sermons on how to read the Bible. So I'm, I'm challenged. I'm, I'm, I don't want to lose you, but what I do want to do as a pastor is I want to give you some little nuggets that will change your life. Absolutely the most important message I can ever preach from this pulpit is Jesus Christ, him crucified. He came to die for lost man. He paid for the penalty of your sins. And if you trust in him, you could go to heaven. That is the most important thing I can ever preach. But aside from that, 
of all the sermons I've ever preached, this is probably, aside from the main message, the most important sermon I've ever preached in my life. So I hope that you will listen. I hope that you will heed. Now, how many of you grew up in Sunday school? Can I see your hands? All right. Now, I don't know what kind of a church you grew up in, but uh, there's a possibility that if you've been in church since you were uh, in Sunday school, maybe as a young person, there's a, there's a possibility you remember singing this little chorus. Every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line. Everybody remember that? Now, how many of you remember that one? All his blessings are his love divine. Every promise in the book is mine. It's been a long time. I, I, I coughed that one up from way down deep. Now, the reason I brought that up is because it is fundamentally wrong. And, and the reason I, I bring this up is because we have accustomed ourselves to doing things wrong and being happy with it. Let me repeat in the words of Paul and Peter. I don't want you to be ignorant. And we sing every promise in the book is mine, but you know, it simply is not. And when we approach reading the Bible as though that song is our theological framework for reading the Bible, we're going to get a whole bunch of stuff wrong. God gave a lot of promises to a lot of people that are not yours. He made promises to Noah that he did not make to Abraham. He made promises to Abraham he did not make to you. He made promises to Israel he never made to the church. And he made promises to church that never belonged to Israel. So you see... When we get into reading the Bible, we have to dispel with some of these mistaken notions that were drilled into us innocently, but nevertheless at risk of, of bringing out confusion, false doctrine. And when people don't read the Bible correctly and they get off on these little tangents, it becomes bondage to them. They adopt a particular style of religion. Christianity that is theirs and theirs only because they think they found something the Bible said that it didn't say that at all because they did not read it correctly. Now, have I set this up enough for you to understand why it's my passion to be able to share with you what I can about how to read the Bible correctly? I've taken enough time on that. Those of you who are connected with me on Facebook are already acquainted with this little illustration I'm going to start with, but those of you who are not, I want to start with this illustration. Uh, many years ago, there was a... a very low-budget sci-fi television show called Twilight Zone. And they, they got back, they had to get by on a, on a shoestring budget. If you ever watch those, you can see the little strings pulling up fake monsters and marching them around. They, they, just, uh, they just didn't have any money to work with. But, but some of the messages of those things were just, just phenomenal. One of those episodes that stands out in my mind that serves as my launch board today was an episode that was called to, uh, to Serve Man. And it was about uh, a bunch of aliens that came to Earth, and uh, they, they represented them, th- themselves as wanting to make relationships with Earthlings, and, and, the, and the Earth people saw them as being benevolent people. And they found a book that belonged to the aliens, and it was called To Serve Man. So they thought, well, my goodness, they're here, here on, a, uh, on a, uh, uh, a mission trip. They, they want to come and, and be s- s- service, of service to people. And... And so the aliens were gathering up followers and, and they were loading them up on their little spacecraft and ready to head out. Uh, when all of a sudden the people who were working on the book came and they, they had translated the title to serve man, but now that they translated the rest of it, they found out it was a recipe book. And this was going to be how to cook and serve human beings. And so here are this bunch of human beings that are following them off. So they are alarmed they have been pulled in because they did not read the book correctly. Okay, <clears throat> wild illustration. 
But it does demonstrate that, you know, some pretty bad things can happen if we don't read the Bible correctly. They can be very devastating to us spiritually in our walk. So I want to give you a few rules. I know that some of this is going to be hard to, to, to absorb. If just a few of them stick out to you, and the next time you read through the New Testament as you're going to do, or the entire Bible, as you begin to remember a few of these things that I laid out to you, I think you're going to see things that you never saw before, no matter how many times you've been through the Bible. That's my goal, and that's my hope. In order to read a book correctly, any book, you have to understand what kind of book you're reading. You're not going to read a recipe book, a cookbook, like you read a novel. You have certain rules that you establish for yourself. You're not going to read a mystery like you read a science book. You know kind of the rules for reading those things. And the Bible is a collection of uh, 66 books written by a variety of different authors and different styles of writing. You have poetry, and you, you read poetry differently. We even do in the English language. You, you have to understand that when in poetry they say certain things, they don't mean it literally. They are expressing things. They are using words to express things in a poetic fashion. So you understand that when you read poetry. So having an understanding of reading these various things, we're going to try and get an approach to this. The first thing I, I, I want to share with you is, as a rule, we rely only on inspired scripture as being infallible truth. And the reason I bring this up is because maybe some of you have run into the question that is running around today, what about this lost gospel that this guy found that claims, reveals Jesus was actually married to Mary Magdalene? Now, if you have not heard that, then you have not been running in the same circles I've been running in. But it's a pretty popular thing that has happened. The media has picked up on it. It's become a big deal because anything they can do that discredits what we believe about Jesus in the Bible becomes a big deal these days. They want to bring uh, lack of credibility and reproach on what we believe is the infallible Word of God. So this lost gospel, he's found this thing, and he believes that it infers Jesus was married, Jesus and Mary. Uh, Magdalene were married. Now, I, I wanted to take this opportunity as a pastor, I think it's, it's beneficial to do this, to give you a little bit of information on this, to equip you for how to answer to that. You might be stunned if somebody in the coffee shop says, well, they found a lost gospel, says Jesus is married. You don't want to just stand there and say, well, I don't believe that. It can't be because you want to know what they're talking about and why they met that kind of a silly accusation. Well, first of all, it's very poor scholarship. The work that they're using is neither lost nor is it a gospel, so right off the bat it has no credibility. And the reason I say that is because it's a document that's been in the, the, the British Museum uh, for a long, long time, and many scholars have studied this document. Number two, it was written, it's not a gospel. It was just a story. It was a novel written about the time that Jesus was walking on earth, and it was written about a man that falls in love with a woman and they get married. And the man's name is Joseph. But the man who is making this assertion, because that was written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John was written, calls it a gospel. He thinks that's the lost gospel. It's a novel. And the names of Jesus and the name of Mary Magdalene are not found in the work whatsoever. What he's done is he's taken the liberty of saying this work is an allegory 
that represents Jesus and Mary. Now that's where he really gets off base because he has no right to take this novel using two totally entirely different names and saying secretly somebody is insinuating this is Jesus and this is Mary. So completely dismiss that. My first point is, is you only rely on inspired scripture as infallible truth. So don't be shaken by all these other rumors that are going around that make you believe somebody's discovered something that you've never believed in before. Another word you need to know, well, let me talk about inspired. I've I've challenged you to only trust inspired scripture. And so we probably have, chances are, we might have people here today that don't understand the significance of the Bible. The Bible says that all scripture is inspired. The word is God-breathed. And there's, there's different theories uh, about how people believe God-inspired or God-breathed the scriptures. There's those who have kind of a remote concept of God, and uh, the more remote your concept of God is, the more they believe that God wrote it, and he just, human beings were typewriters in his hands. So God is just dictating and men are writing. And uh, there, there's a lot of uh, theological terminology Uh, that goes along with this that I don't want to burden you down with. Uh, But the the inspiration of the word, was was it word by word? Did they write only what God spoke to them? Or was there an inspiration for uh, that God gave them the freedom to write, yet he superintended that and made sure that what they wrote was the message he wanted others to have? Now, a more intimate view of God generally leans toward the second one. And that is that God inspired people. Yet they spoke, they used their own thoughts. They used their own expressions. They used their own culturalisms. They they used their own words to be able to say what they wanted to say. Yet God superintended so that when it was said, it did not do any destruction to the message that needed to be given. So the scripture is inspired. It's God breathed. He inspired people to write these things. We believe the word to be the infallible inspired word of God. Translations are not inspired, you understand. I, I remember, and some of you were here that day, the, the, the Sunday I came and tried out, we had question and answer session. And I stood in here in front and, and put on bulletproof vest, and you, you people fired shots at me to see what I was made of. And one man stood up and said, what do you believe about the King James Bible? I knew I was in trouble at that point. Because that's a very big issue in some people's life. King James only. Uh, King James Version is not inspired. It is a translation. As a matter of fact, let me throw another commercial in. As you read next month, the month of January, read through the New Testament, choose a translation that reads easy to you. It's okay. It's safe. You're not going to go to hell just because you chose another translation. I promise you. And there's a lot of them that read very easily. Choose one. NLT, New Living Translation, is a good one. You probably wouldn't want to use that if you were going to do scholarly work, but it's safe for reading. It really is. NIV reads fairly well, and I know NIV has a a few problems, and all of them have a few problems. Uh, We could talk at length about that. But choose one that reads real well, because the main thing is you you want to be able to get the story inside of you. So do not, if you've never read the Bible before, do not pick up a King James Version and try to do that. You will be so discouraged by the antiquated language in that. You won't have a clue what they will be saying. So go to something a, a little more modern. 
as, as far as translations is concerned, and those who become very uh, emphatic about King James only, here's a little bit of information I want to share with you. The Bible was written, the Old Testament, in Hebrew. How many of you here read Hebrew? That's what I thought. That wouldn't do us any good, would it? So we have to have something that's functional for us. The New Testament was written in Greek, but Jesus spoke Aramaic. So the very first edition of anything that is now New Testament was a translation to begin with. We do not have an Aramaic work, which would have been the original language. We have somebody who heard the Aramaic and translated it into Greek. So the very earliest is already a translation. So people are talking about the best Bible and the only Bible. Don't even have a clue how the Bible came to us unless they have a copy of an Aramaic writing somewhere that tells the same story and they know how to read Aramaic. And furthermore, for the people who say, this is my favorite translation and this is the only translation anybody ought to use, how do you... Uh, comfort the Russians and the Germans and the Spanish and the French. They don't read King James. Everybody needs a translation that helps them to understand what the story is. Some versions do a better job than others. Some not such a good version. The Living Bible is just a paraphrase. It doesn't work off of Greek manuscripts. It just takes any Bible, reads it, and says, I think it would be easier to understand if it was said this way, and they wrote it down. But I don't recommend it as being the best one, but it won't send you to hell. The Amplified Bible is one that is what we call multiple choice. You read the Amplified Bible, and there are about ten choices, and you say, I like that one best. And there's not a worse way to read the Bible than just to be suddenly taken with the notion, I like that word. I pick that one. And it tells you absolutely nothing and makes no effort whatsoever to make an accurate translation. So that's just for funsies. I wouldn't mess with that whatsoever. The Bible is not multiple choice. Go with NIV, NLT, or even the New English translation. Now, reading the different parts of the Bible with different rules. First of all, since we're going to be reading the New Testament, we're going to start off with the Gospels. Here's some hints about how to read the gospel. The four gospels are a unique set of writings. They are distinct from the rest of the books included in the New Testament because they cling together. None of these were written by Jesus. They are stories about Jesus, and they include not only the things he did, but the things he said. They are four books by four different authors, and they were all written after the death of Jesus. Now, this is what you have to understand about the Gospels, and I think there are many Christians that really don't think about this a lot. But understand our mentality most of the time concerning the Gospels is that Matthew followed Jesus around, and as he did something, he wrote that down and documented this is what it happened. And so when he got done, he had his account of Jesus. And Mark was also somewhere in the crowd and he was writing and taking his notes because, see, in the 21st century, we have such a video camera mentality. It's as though we think of these as news reporters or they were carrying their tape recorders in, uh, or the equivalent of in those days and they were just documenting what happened. And that's not the Gospels at all. 
These were not people who followed Jesus around and noted his every action and wrote them down and came up with four different versions of it. These are people that after the fact, after Jesus was gone, and the story of Jesus lived on through oral tradition, they, had, they were interested in preserving the story of Jesus Christ. So each gospel writer wanted to produce this story and preserve it in writing for a specific people. Mark wrote for a specific people. Matthew wrote for a specific people. They all wanted to preserve it because they saw an individual need for preserving this story. So Mark wrote the first one. There's evidence that many scholars believe that Matthew and Luke saw that work and said, you know, that's a good idea. Just like uh, TV today, when they come up with a new TV show that's got a particular kind of a theme or whether it's a sci-fi or whether it's a reality show, the others say, that's a good idea. Let's make one too. Well, this is kind of what Matthew and Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke did. They saw Mark's work and they said, you know, that's a good idea. But Mark doesn't quite convey the things that I want to tell about it. So either having been eyewitnesses or hearing the oral traditions, two more writers got together and said, let's also produce a work about the life of Jesus, and they did. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. John, he wasn't thinking of that. John had something totally different in mind whenever he wrote, and it's not part of what we call the synoptic gospels. They don't agree together. You can put Matthew, Mark, and Luke side by side, and they track together somewhat. But John doesn't track at all. As Matthew, Mark, and Luke are starting off and getting off to early off in Jesus' ministry, and Matthew and Luke talking about his very birth and bringing up through the genealogies, and John doesn't, he just starts off declaring Jesus Christ. Now, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Isn't that a powerful beginning to the story of Jesus? It's a totally different approach. So all already you're seeing as you read the Gospels, there's a different way to read those as well. Mark was speaking to a certain people, Luke was speaking to a certain people, Matthew to a certain people, and they had a certain message when they wrote this. That's the reason. When you read these and you see things out of order, and you say, well, how could this be? How come Matthew puts this clear over here, Luke puts it in the middle, and, and maybe somebody, Mark, puts it uh, totally at the end? Why, why are these events so out of order? Because it was not important for writers in that day to write things chronologically. Now, we live in a society where that makes sense to us. If you're going to document something, you, you make a chronological order of it. But the writing style in those days, chronology was not important to them. Important to them was bringing a point out. So if Matthew wants to bring a point out and he wants to incorporate the story of what Jesus did in the feeding of the 5,000 or the cleansing of the temple or whatever, and he thinks this would be appropriate time to tell that story, he pulls that story in over here to surround it, to help it to attach to the point he's trying to make. So you will see in the New Testament many times these things are out of order. Don't let that dismay you. Don't let any of the critics tell you that there's so many mistakes and they don't agree together and they can't even agree in which order it happened. You know better than that. That was not the intent with which they were writing their book. There are differences, first of all, due to the fact that each writer wrote to a particular community of believers. There's a difference, number two, because the chronology, as I said, relates to the style of writing of that era. And number three, the differences in the gospel can be attributed to the fact that Jesus spoke in Aramaic. So whenever these writers 
took the words of Jesus or the people who preserved the oral tradition took the words of Jesus and said, in other words, what he's saying is there was already a translation in effect by the time they wrote it. So that also accounts for some of the discrepancies in taking it from a different language into this language. The very fact that these stories are the retelling of the story of Jesus Christ in a language that was intended to suit the audience becomes for us today the perfect model for why we should tell the story of Jesus in terms people can understand. Now, I want you to hang with me. I put too much work into this for you to check out. <laughs> hang with me. I'm going to introduce this again. The very fact that the early documents were put into a language people could understand to tell the story of Jesus is the perfect model for us to put the story of Jesus Christ in terms people can understand. You know, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote the uh, Chronicles of Narnia. What is it? A seven set, eight set. I've got the entire set. And the Lion, Witch, and the Reward Robe. And they've even made a couple of movies out of these. The Silver Chair, Prince Caspian, uh, several of these. What he was doing was telling the story of Jesus in a way that would engage people in a different way. Uh, Bunyan, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was telling the story of Jesus in a different way that people could understand it. And we have the freedom to do that. If the original writers took it and put it in a way that people could understand it, we understand that's okay. We shouldn't be bothered by that. Now, let me give you an example. Missionary Don Richardson has this philosophy that buried within every tribal culture is some practice or tradition he calls redemptive analogies. In other words, he thinks if you look long enough and hard enough in every culture, you're going to find something that you can relate to the message of Jesus Christ and they will understand it. Now, the reason he has this philosophy within every culture is the concept of redemptive analogies. It's because of his own experience of going and trying to minister to the Saudi natives and unable in Dutch New Guinea to break through to them with the message of Jesus Christ. It took him years to conquer the language. It was an incredibly complex language in which verbs had 20 different tenses and he had to learn to speak it before he could preach Jesus to them. So he learned the, the Sawe language and then he began to preach Jesus Christ to them, taking the Bible and preaching about God, giving his son, and the story of Judas betraying Jesus, and Jesus ending up being crucified. And in the Sawi culture, as they heard this story, they celebrated Judas as the hero, and they thought Jesus to be a dupe. That's all they got out of it. No matter how hard he tried to say, you don't understand. This is a beautiful story of God giving his son. They just thought, thought Jesus was a fool. They liked Judas. They could identify with that guy. This missionary is stuck. You're just supposed to tell the story. People are so, supposed to be changed by the proclamation of it. And maybe that's part of the problems we pastors struggle with. Is If you just tell the story of Jesus, everybody ought to get saved. But they don't, do they? Maybe I'm not speaking the language people need to hear. So the missionary prayed about this. God, I have to have a breakthrough. And as the little villages of the Sawi tribes were even warring with each other, they were, they were headhunters, they were cannibals, and they were at constant war. 
Don Richardson decided it's too dangerous here. I'm going to leave. Well, the Salwis kind of like him by now. They may not have understood his story, but they, they kind of like him there. So they said, well, we can't have you leaving. What's it going to take for you to stay? And, of course, he expressed that it was too dangerous. They're, they're all on the edge of war. And, and they said, well, we'll fix it for you. So the leaders of the villages got together, and they said, our missionary is getting ready to leave us. What are we going to do? And they said, well, let's make peace. And they had this ritual where one village would bring their children and give it to another village. And therefore, they were entrusting their children to their enemies, and they were making peace. And he saw one man specifically come out of his village with his son and hand his son to his sworn enemy. And he said, that's it. That's it. And once again, he spoke to the Sawi tribe. This was the peace child. There's a book by that name if you want to read the book, Peace Child. This unlocks the key. For God came and brought his son and gave them to his sworn enemies. So making peace, Paul says in the book of Ephesians. And when they heard that, that God gave the peace child, they began to get saved in that village. And it just swept through until in in recent years they built the largest indoor pole barn, pole building uh, in the world to hold all the Christians who were worshiping in that area. You know, sometimes you just have to take the story of Jesus and preach it in terms other people can understand. And that's okay. And that's what the gospel writers did for us in bringing us the story not only in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, telling the Greek people the story to preserve it. But in the English translators, bringing it into our language, whether it's the King James Version, the NIV, or the New American Standard, the Revised American Standard, it doesn't make any difference, whatever version it is. Bring it to a place where people can understand that and receive the good news of Jesus Christ. The next rule is... uh, Identify the audience Jesus was speaking to when you read, when you read the Gospels, and you'll be starting on those very soon. Who was Jesus speaking to? This is one of those points, and I will reiterate this point point throughout my four sermons. If we don't understand who he's speaking to, we have a huge uh, danger of misunderstanding what the intent of it was, and, and sometimes making false doctrine out of it, and making false doctrine, sometimes making false practices out of it. Who's he speaking to? There were times when he was speaking only to his disciples. There was times he was speaking strictly to the inner circle of his disciples, just his apostles. Whenever he told his uh, inner 12, his inner circle, that uh, they were going to, there was going to be thrones, and they were going to get to sit on these thrones. He didn't say that to the rest of the people. He didn't promise that to you. You're not getting one of those special thrones. His 12 disciples, he spoke that to them. What, what about the times when he was speaking not to the disciples in general, but he's just speaking to the large crowd that gathered. He changed his message for them. He didn't tell them the same things he told his disciples in secret. He preached other things when he preached to the large crowds. There were times whenever he was speaking that he was speaking to his enemies. 
And you have to understand that the audience he's speaking to makes a difference in the message and whether it applies to you or not. The next thing to understand is the term kingdom of God. Keep that in mind as you get into the Gospels, kingdom of God. For Jesus started his ministry by saying, now here's why I've come. I've come to, and he he announced his ministry. I've come to uh, set the captive free, uh, give sight to the blind, uh, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then it says that he was declaring the kingdom of God. That's the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And if you read the Gospels, this is one of the most important points you will get from this sermon today. When you read the Gospels, when you read them with the understanding that what you're about to read is going to be an example of what it means for the kingdom of God to be among men. He constantly demonstrated what it's like when the kingdom of God is here. And the kingdom of God is two things at the same time. It's here and it's yet to come. You've got to keep that in mind because that can confuse you as you're uh, reading this as well. It's both now and it's yet to come. There's an application of that in both ways. So you're reading the Gospels. He said, I'm going to show you what it's like to live where God dwells among men. And everything that Jesus did was a proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. Everything he did was a proclamation of the good news, the good news that he announced to begin with. Things are going to change because I came. And he gives them a little taste of what that kingdom of God is like whenever he heals the sick and raises the dead and forgives sins. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is within you. That theme runs throughout those gospels. So read it with that in mind. You are reading what it was like for the kingdom of God to actually be among people that had never been there before. Not, not, not like that. He brought the kingdom of God to them. Yet for us to realize that at the same time, not only is the kingdom now, but it's also yet to come. When he says, pray like this, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. And we're praying for it yet to come, even though we know that in part we already have the presence of the kingdom of God. A taste, a a foretaste, a down payment of what is yet to come. People get off track when they begin to think that a story told in the Gospels is therefore set forth as a normative for the church. Normative. There's a term you want to understand. Normative. That is something that is established to be a standard, an example to be followed. That's the word normative. People get off track when they read the Gospels and they think just because a story's in the Bible that it becomes a normative, almost a command for the church to do that, to duplicate that. If Jesus tells the rich young ruler, and these are just extreme extreme examples, if we don't keep it in context, if Jesus tells the rich young ruler, go and sell all that you have and follow me, then there's this little group of people who thinks that the only way to please Jesus is to literally go and sell everything they have and just be a follower of him. And so they build this church based on the doctrine of selling everything you have and committing it all to Christ. And that becomes what we know today as these false communes. They say, well, you've got to sell it all to love Jesus. Now, there is probably one of the most powerful illustrations, and I'm going to get into a lot of them in these four sermons, of how if you misread the Gospels and you misapply the Gospels, you get into some crazy stuff. How many of you have ever had a relative messed up in a, uh, a cult? Have any of you had that? My goodness, I can't believe nobody here has ever had a friend messed up in a cult. 
it gets in their brain. They, they, they tell them all kinds of weird stuff. Cults are dangerous. And cults start because they take something out of context, out of the Bible, and they build something around that and they make everybody believe that's what you have to be to really love God. The rest of the world doesn't get it. Paul said, what? I don't want you to be ignorant. Understand, you can read the Bible and not get off base by saying, well, they did that. That's what we ought to do. That's not necessarily so. And then uh, this thing about you've got to sell all that you have. So you've got this other little cult that says if you have any accumulation of money and all, God can't love you. A rich man can't go to heaven. It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of an eagle than for a rich man to get into heaven. But they forget that Zacchaeus was a rich man, but he found Jesus Christ. And Jesus didn't say you have to give up everything to love me. It was just a case-by-case thing for the rich young man. That's what stood between him and God. But it didn't apply to Zacchaeus. Number six, I challenge you to think both horizontally and vertically, and I have to define those terms for that to make any sense to you. Simply put, if I use the word horizontal, think horizontally when you read the Gospels, that means when you read the Gospels, feel free to compare Matthew to Mark to Luke because it will give you maybe a broader understanding of the historical account. But when you think vertically, you let Matthew stand alone and Luke stand alone and Mark stand alone because you say they have something to say. And it's what they have to say that becomes the most important thing. For instance, and I will end with this illustration, If you're a Bible reader, you're acquainted with the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And Matthew records this, and Mark records this. Remember that? There are subtle and significant differences. That's reading horizontally. Because Matthew saw certain things that were more important to him. He was not recording exactly what he thought Jesus was doing because that wasn't when he recorded it. But he was remembering and saying, you know what stood out to me about that? We do that all the time in conversation. Maybe we'll hear a sermon and we'll discuss the sermon. And somebody says, well, you know what stood out about that sermon to me? And all we wanted was a duplicate of the sermon. You could have turned your tape recorder on. What you wanted is people to say, what, this is what I got out of it. That's what Mark, Matthew was doing. That's what Mark was doing. That's what Luke was doing. And in some cases, what John was doing as he told his own stories. But th- this is what I got out of it. So we take this parable of the workers in the vineyard. And there are subtle differences between them because each writer said, I see something different in that. And Matthew tells the story in such a way, in such a context, that the parable stresses this, this point, uh, a different point entirely from Mark. Mark says in this story that it's really about the grace of God. As he tells the story, if you read Mark's account, you come away saying, God is gracious. Now, for those of you not acquainted with the parable of the workers, uh, the laborers in the vineyard, it's about people who went to work at various times in the day. The people who went to work later worked less, Right? At the end of the day, they all got paid the same. This naturally caused some people to be unhappy 
those who worked all day long complained and said, now those who came to work at the last hour are getting the same wages we got, and that's not fair. Yet Mark tells us in such a fashion as to help us to understand that God is the one that makes the final decision on what's fair. And we can make that application by saying, one person may have loved and served God all of their life with all of their heart and devoted so much to him and gave generously into the cause and, and sacrificed certain things to live for God. And he gets to go to heaven. But then there's this Johnny come lately that they didn't do anything for the kingdom. And then in their dying moment, they just had the awareness to call out and grab a hold of God. Is it right that they get to go to heaven just like the man that's used... Uh, that, that's lived their entire life. And what Marx is saying is, yes, because God owns the vineyard. And it's none of your business. As long as you get what's coming to you, it's none of your business what anybody else gets. So it's powerful for us to understand, and Mark wants us to understand this, that whenever the thief on the cross, who had not spent a minute of his life investing in God or investing in heaven or investing in eternity, suddenly at the last minute realizes, I've wasted about everything in my life. And just cries out to Jesus, recognizing him to be special, to be the Son of God, and says, will you remember me? Just think about me when you come into your kingdom. And of course, the wonderful end of that story is that's all it took. Isn't it amazing you didn't have to say a sinner's prayer? Isn't it amazing we didn't have to give him the Roman road to salvation? Isn't it amazing he didn't know the proper terminology? All he knew to say is just from a sincere heart, remember me when you come into the kingdom. I'm afraid I'm not going to go there, but if you'll just think about me, that's all I can ask. No, I'm not just going to think about you. We're going to go together. This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. That's the grace of God. That's what Mark wanted you to know. And when Matthew tells the story, he says, here's what I got out of it. Because, see, Matthew includes the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And he understood that to mean as it ministered to him that these apostles that Jesus pulled from every walk of life were Johnny-come-latelys compared to the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests who had been in this religion for all their life and pretending they were worshiping God and they were something important and they had all this pride. And you remember the Pharisee that prayed and said, I'm glad, God, I'm so glad you did not make me like this filthy publican over here, but you've made me special. But Matthew tells the story and says, if God can take a bunch of dregs of society tax collectors and fishermen and nobodies and make something special out of them and they'll enter into the kingdom before these long-standing people. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Friend, what can he do with you? So Matthew had a different take on this. And each one of us can be blessed by what Matthew had to say and by what Mark had to say. Same story, but they saw it differently. You'll read that differently this time when you go through the Gospels than you ever have before. You won't say, same old story, I read that, I'm going to skip over it and go to another. Because you're going to miss a lot of stuff. If you don't realize every writer had something specific to say, read the story again, but get what the writer was trying to tell you. And you'll have a whole different dimension to reading your Bible. So thinking horizontally means comparing the Gospels and not being bothered by the differences. And thinking vertically means let's just narrow it down 
what was this writer? Though he's using the same illustration, what was he trying to say to me? Now, what is God saying to us today? I'll continue this next three Sundays. This will get you started on the Gospels. What's God saying to us? I think very clearly today from what I've been able to bring out of this, and even when I do a teaching like this, I pray God tender our hearts to the gospel message. Help us to understand the most valuable message of all is not just a lesson on how to read the Bible, but something about the Holy Spirit speaking to everyone here today, your need for Jesus Christ. It's, it's my heart's passion as a pastor that every person come to an understanding somehow, some way, we need Jesus. We just cannot succeed without him. We can make the best, best plans that we can possibly make in this life, but if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior and your guide, things can go wrong so fast and turn your world upside down. And for a world that is confused and lost and hurting and lonely and struggling to find peace and happiness and joy, there is no other answer than Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the gospel coming to every hurting and lost and dying person and saying, you know what, there's hope. There's something better than what you've found so far. And if you'll put your trust in me, I will elevate you. I'll show you what living is really about. And that's what we're preaching today. Would you bow your heads?